It's been kind of our goal to try to do this at least twice a year. It's a great way for us to hear, you know, what you guys are thinking, hopefully processing the messages that you've been hearing. Uh, but not just that. We want to make sure we open it up for any other questions, uh, things that have come up. I know there's been people I've even talked to lately about uh, things revolving around Christmas and seeing family and spending time with unbelieving family members. So uh, there were a few questions that had been posed to us. Uh, so we're going to have, do we have microphones in the back? So if you guys want to go see Jeremiah or Brian in the back, they have the microphones and you can start lining up now if you'd like to. But just to kind of get things going a little bit, uh, we were talking even this morning and, and I know it came up in a Q&A recently, but we have this giant Christmas tree behind us and we've had some people asking about, well, is it okay to be celebrating Christmas? Is it okay to have, you know, this idol in your house <laughs> and things like that? So some of you are chuckling, others of you might be serious about that. But uh, what do you guys say about that? I mean, even Christmas or other holidays, what are your thoughts about celebrating those, particularly this one and Christmas tree and all of that? Yeah, you know, I started my message last week saying uh, that I'm sympathetic with the Puritans in most ways. I love their theology, I love their approach to sanctification and, and holy living, but I disagree with them on Christmas. Most of the Puritans didn't like the idea of celebrating Christmas. They saw it as a vestige of Romanism, but I love Christmas. And, uh, uh, you know, I think if you take the mentality that, okay, Christmas trees grew out of a tradition that's idolatrous, and I'm not sure that's true. One tale that I've read is that uh, Martin Luther actually was the uh, inventor of the Christmas tree, put candles on it and lit it up. But either way, I, I don't if you, if you take the mentality that, okay, because this has roots in paganism, I'm not going to observe it, you're going to have to rename the days of the week, you know, stop using candles because every pagan I know uses candles in some way or another. Hmm. Uh, I, I just don't think the emblems of paganism are what's most important. The question is, who do you worship and how are you worshiping? And if you worship your tree then that's a stumbling block to you and get rid of it. But uh, if it's a decoration that makes your wife happy, as in my case, <laughs> go for it. Yeah, I've had people say, well, you actually, you actually do bow down and worship the tree because you have to lean over and pick up the presents. <laughs> yeah, one of, the, one of the things that annoys me the most about it is I have to kneel in order to plug it in. Yeah. And it hurts my knees. Well, you so you I, know, I have to bend over when I do the dishwasher, so maybe I shouldn't do that well, anymore. That's what I, that's what I... H honey, you okay with that? <laughs> it's idol worship. <laughs> now we're getting somewhere. Right. I, when the person, the person who asked me that, you know, we're talking about like bending down, I took their pen and threw it on the ground <laughs> and said, now you got to go worship the pen. Right. You know, you got to bend down to pick, you're not, it's obviously, it's just, it's, it's, in, it's functional. I mean, the thing that rings in my mind is Romans 14, right? One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he, and he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God. I think the idea is, is that whether you observe holidays or whether you decide not to observe holidays, Paul 
places the observance of special days like that squarely in the realm of what we call adiaphora, the, uh, the things that are sort of neither here nor there, gray areas, which are not in themselves sinful or righteous. Uh, the, what, what makes something sinful or righteous with respect to the observance of holy days or holidays, right, is whether you do it for the Lord, whether you engage in it with a conscious heart of worship for Christ, or whether you abstain from it with a conscious heart of worship for Christ. And so you can, you can enjoy the traditions and the, and the holidays so long as you do it for Christ's sake and not for, you know, worshiping the tree. It, I, I heard stories recently about how there was, you know, the, the, the Roman Catholic Church had had some tree or whatever that was, that was a symbol of their power and then some anti-Catholic folks in like the 8th century came and, and like burnt it down but a little fir tree grew out of the roots of the, of the tree that was burnt down and so that fir tree became the symbol of the evangelical sort of uh, sola scriptura, sola fide resistance of the Catholic movement and then eventually into the, into the 1500s and Martin Luther uh, brought a fir tree. It had already been going on, but he brought a fir tree into the house and, and uh, put some candles on it. So uh, the tree, you know, it, you know, there was, I don't know if you guys were at the Q&A a couple weeks ago um, when Pastor John was doing one in the evening, but there was a guy who got up and, and didn't ask a question. He just proceeded to make statements, which is always a bad thing for a Q&A, by the way. Make sure your cues are actually cues. And, and basically just sort of said, you know, we, we can't have these trees. And he quoted some, some passage in Jeremiah about trees. And it's just like, man, you know, you're, you're reaching. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, there are pagans who worship trees, but all trees are not pagan. You know, I mean, give me a break. Yeah, this comes up every year. And it's, uh, it seems like a different person every year. So I've dealt with this for probably close to 50 years, questions about this. And in my experience, the people who seem most obsessed with uh, whether we ought to have Christmas trees or even observe Christmas and all that are people who in many other ways live inconsistent lives. And mm. I say, hey, you know, concentrate on the things that are absolutely clear in Scripture, the commandments that are given to you and not these things that are clearly gray areas. And uh, it seems to me that the, the antipathy towards Christmas celebrations, a lot of it is driven by fear, a fear that maybe I'm doing something that's going to bring the condemnation of God. In that fear, I think, is as much a wicked superstition as you would find in actual pagan worship. So if you're concerned about wicked superstition, then don't be fearful about those things. Perfect love casts out fear, and, and we, are, we are commanded by Scripture to make the most of our Christian liberty, to, to not give up the liberty that we have in Christ. And uh, I would put this squarely in the, in the realm, as Mike said, of adiaphora. That means things that we have liberty to do, everyone according to his own conscience. Thank you. All right, let's go to the back. Harry, you have a question? Yes. Um, in the book of Luke, there's a verse it says, this is the way that the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked upon me with favor to take away my disgrace among men. I always thought that was a good verse to open up in a baptismal testimony. So my question is, what is your both testimony and how you got here? For those who haven't heard and for those who are struggling with their salvation and there's times when we feel like, gee, am I really saved? And you like to hear a testimony and 
kind of lift you up and bring you into reality, God's truth? Yeah, that's a good question. Thank you. I've always wanted to hear his testimony. I, he, you would have thought you might have done that before you asked him to pastor along with you, but <laughs> no. I just curious. I think, I think you've heard it. I am. Well, I'm yeah. kidding. Wow. To be brief, well, I mean, I grew up in a, in a, you know, a home where my parents were both very young believers, the first believers in their family. We, went up, we grew up going to, to churches, you know, fairly, you know, weak vanilla Baptist churches in central New Jersey. And uh, I thought that I was a Christian from when I was a very young child. The, the, you know, the gospel message always made sense to me, right? If I disobeyed, I got a, a punishment from my, my parents. If I disobeyed God, I got a, a God-sized punishment. That was hell. And uh, if I believed in Jesus who died for my sins, I could escape that punishment. So I, four years old, five years old, would have, would have made that confession. You know, grew up as a young child thinking that I was saved, but you know, then you get into your 11, 12, 13, 14 years, you know, where you start to kind of become who you're going to be and was just extraordinarily selfish, you know, an angry child with nothing to be angry about, very manipulative person. I don't know why I had friends when I was younger. I mean, I was just, I was just, when you look back at it, you know, yeah, I was a young sinner, but man, I was a sinner. And, uh, but I, but I believed because I believed the facts of the gospel and assented to them and went to church and prayed at dinner time sometimes or with, with my dad. You know, when my dad prayed, I would just sit there and, and listen. You know, that, that okay, this is what it means to be a Christian. And um, when I was, the summer before I turned 15, I, I went to Italy with my extended family. My, my great aunt and uncle had a house in southern Italy. My, my grandmother and, and they would travel there often. I, I would always say, take them with you. And they always laughed and said, oh, you know, you think we're going to go travel Europe. We're just going to go to an old town with a bunch of old people and hang around and, and uh, you know, talk stories and, and reminisce about the old days. It's not going to be fun. I don't care. Take me anyway. And they, they took me. And when I was there, I, I had the time of my life, basically. It was funny, you know, talking with... No, but there were a bunch of other young kids that I was able to connect with. People found me intriguing because I was American and spoke English and they could practice their English. And I had seen a, a beauty of the creation in, in Calabria, Southern Italy, that was off, a lot awful like you know, the creation around here in, in Southern California, these big rolling hills, mountains, uh, and clear skies at times, not here, but a little bit further up north from here. And was just overwhelmed by the kindness of God. So I was experiencing the kindness of God, which I knew these common grace blessings, the beauty of the creation, the, ple the pleasures of society, you know, uh, enjoying, enjoying time away, getting to travel to Italy as a 14-year-old kid. You know, I, one day I was just sitting there thinking about it, going, my goodness, I have been shown a lot of kindness. And I remembered, I mean, I thought I was a Christian, so I knew to ascribe these things to God's goodness. And so I thought, well, my life really hasn't matched the, the blessings I've been given, I, that's got to change. And so when I go back home, I'm going to start paying attention in church and going to the youth group and these sorts of things. And, and, uh, and I did. And at the time, I would have thought I was just, you know, becoming serious, you know, rededicating my life or this or that. But then I read the New Testament. And I realized, oh, you know, what was happening to me was God was granting me the repentance that leads to life, the repentance without which there is no salvation. My entire, you know, confessing the words and believing the facts 
for the first 14, 15 years of my life meant, meant nothing. I was deceived. And uh, really what happened is God's kindness, Romans 2.4, led me to repentance. And from there, I, you know, re read the scripture. I had a really wonderful set of older friends who uh, discipled me, taught me how to read scripture, and friends my own age who taught me how to be a Christian as a 15, 16-year-old kid. And, uh, and yeah, that's about as quick as I can do it. That's pretty good. I've uh, given my testimony a few times when I preached. If you want the extended version of it, uh, download one of my messages from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 or 2. Uh, I think usually when I get to the early parts of 1 Corinthians, I give my testimony. Here's why. I grew up in a liberal background, a liberal church, going to church every Sunday, but because my family's tradition was Methodism, they had all stayed with the United Methodist Church even after it went liberal. And uh, I grew up pretty skeptical of what I was being taught in Sunday school because we would hear these lessons and, uh, about Bible stories, and by the time I was in junior high, the Sunday school teacher was saying, now, now don't take this literally. This didn't actually happen, but here's the moral lesson you draw from it. And I was like, if we don't take this literally, if this is just a fable, why do we come to church and talk about it? Why do we pray and worship God? If, if this isn't true, I, and, and one Sunday I basically garnered the courage to say that to my Sunday school teacher, if this isn't true, you tell us every week, don't take this seriously, why, why do we come and talk about it? I want to stay home and watch the NFL pregame show. And she thought I was just being a smart aleck, and in a way I was, but she told the pastor on me, he summoned me to his office, and... and uh, and I had this long conversation with him, which revealed to me, for the first time I understood, he doesn't believe the Bible either. Mm. And so I stopped going to church for a couple of years. I was in high school by then, my parents gave me enough freedom, and at the time my mom was, was ill with a muscle disease, so she was spending a lot of time in the hospital and doctor's appointments and all that. So I had the freedom just to stop going to church, and so I did for about a year. Uh, but it left a sort of gaping hole in my soul and my consciousness. And one night I picked up the Bible and just was feeling guilty or oppressed or something. And I thought, I need to read some of the Bible. And I'd never read it seriously, so I didn't know what to do. I just flopped it open. And it opened to the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. And uh, I thought, I'll, I counted the pages and thought, well, it's a long book, but I'm going to try to read <laughs> I'll try to, I'd never read a whole book of Scripture before. I thought, I'll try to read this. And by the time I got to chapter 3, I was so under conviction because that's where Paul just hammers the wisdom of this world. And he says, if any of you seems to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. And somehow that communicated to me, even at age 17, that you are lost and your life needs a change. I'd heard enough to know that Scripture says you must be born again. Didn't talk about that in the Methodist church, but, but somehow all of that gelled within a week or so. Several things happened that exposed me to the gospel. By the end of that week, I was a believer. And um, so there you are. Been a believer ever since. <laughs> That's good. Very good. Yes. Morning. I've greatly enjoyed, as I believe others have, our uh, venture into the Pentateuch, uh, getting to hear from many gifted uh, teachers on Sunday morning. Something that just kind of jumped off 
off the page at me when we were going through this passage. I just kind of want to make sure that I'm seeing, not seeing things that aren't there. But uh, when God basically told Moses, this is an evil people, step back, I'm going to wipe them out, I'll start again with you. Moses intercedes, and he intercedes on the basis of God's glory, what will the nation say, and on the basis of the promises made to the Father. And because of that, God relents. Now, my question is, I see a heavy implication from that for what's called replacement theology, where Israel is kind of set aside, and now it's just the church. If God was not, in the end, going to replace Israel with Moses based upon his promises and his glory, which never change, does that argue strongly that God will not ultimately set aside his people Israel? First of all, I think that that's, it's, it's a great observation. It's the observation you should make out of Exodus 32. <clears throat> Remember, Abraham, <clears throat> Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all this land of which I have spoken. I'll give it to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. And, and when in that kind of petition for God's goodness to his people on the basis of his covenant and his love for his own name, right? What are, these, what are the Egyptians going to say? You led them out only to let them die. Yahweh can't deliver his people. That is all over the Bible. In Joshua 7, the same prayer happens there. Let me just go. Phil said it was okay if I filibustered today. So Israel's defeated at Ai, right? And in Joshua 7, 6, Joshua tore his clothes, fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, and both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord Yahweh, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan only to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? And I think Dave might have quoted this in his Deuteronomy 30 sermon in Jeremiah 14, 7. Jeremiah basically prays the same prayer. God, don't destroy your people for the sake of of your own name, although our iniquities testify against us, O Lord, act for your namesake. And then Daniel, in Daniel 9, when he's, you know, st standing on the, you know, the rubble of, of Jerusalem and, and he sees the, the, uh, the destruction that has happened at the result of the, the exile, the, the Babylonian invasion, he, it's, just, it's, just, it's just glorious. Daniel 9, 15 and 19. And now, O Lord, our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day, we have sinned and we have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O oh Lord, hear 
Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, oh, my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. So you see, the righteous always intercede with God, not on the basis of, you know, their misery even, certainly not on the basis of their own righteousness. Hey, you know, we've sinned, but we've been pretty good for the most part, and this has just been like a little slip up, and, and we're humans anyway, and we're not perfect, so what can you do? You know, kids are going to be kids. Please just be merciful to it. No, you, God, because of your grace, have put your name upon us, and for good or for ill, we represent you. Don't destroy the reputation of your own honor by letting your people suffer the misery that, that we deserve. That is God-centered supplication. So I just love that, first of all, as an observation. And I think the answer to your question, ultimately, can it be used as an argument for the perpetuity of God's covenant promises to Israel is absolutely yes. And I think that's what Paul says in Romans 11 when he starts speaking of the Abrahamic blessings, when he says, right, from from the standpoint of the gospel, they're your enemies, right? The, the, the great part of Israel has turned away and not embraced their Messiah. And so they, for the, from the gospels, for the gospel's sake, at the current time, are enemies of the people of God. But from, what does it say? From the standpoint of God's choice, Romans eleven twenty eight, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. What does it mean to be beloved for the sake of the fathers? Who are the fathers? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Israel, as it says in Exodus 32, the covenant promises made to the patriarchs that there will be a land given to this seed which will become this nation, right? Those promises need to be fulfilled as they were promised. And yeah, if God wouldn't destroy Israel right there on the basis of his love for his own name, why should he ever destroy his people whom he foreknew simply for no other reason than the love of his own name? And in fact, that's... Uh that is the whole point of Romans 11. Paul starts that chapter by saying, what do we say then? Has God abandoned his people? And then the whole chapter is uh, the answer where, he, where Paul basically surveys uh, the faithfulness of God and says, in the end, all Israel will be saved. There, there will come a time when the, the Jewish people will turn in faith to Christ. So we'll look forward to that. I just want to commend you on your fashion sense. Yeah. <laughs> All right, you, that's a great shirt. It was a good conference. Thanks, Thank Darren. you. Let me, let me just interject one here so that I don't, I don't want to punish those who actually gave me these. So, um, Somebody had written in and said, if a Christian church, and she put in parentheses Christian, but a Christian church allows a woman to be a pastor, and all those attending love her, and the Mrs. Pastor does not teach on the verses about women, are not permitted to teach men. So she's saying basically this, this woman pastor doesn't teach on the verses about women and not permitted to teach men. Will those in the church now we're talking about, after they die, lose some rewards? Now, I think we have a few things going on here. But, uh, you know, obviously this came up, uh, you know, recently with all of the messages that John has talked about with should women teach? Should women be pastors? Uh, this one's asking about now those specifically in the congregation that sit under this, will they lose some rewards? We even had somebody in our Bible study the other night say, am I to assume that people sitting in this kind of church aren't saved? You know, could they be saved? So, I mean, that came up in our Bible study too. So, maybe kind of 
touching on both of those things. Yeah, if, if I think I think you have to raise. There is a fair question to be raised about the faith uh, of someone who willingly sits under leadership that doesn't qualify by the biblical standard. And it's not just women. Uh, I think of all these churches, li- literally hundreds of thousands of churches today that are pastored by people, supposedly pastored by people who don't meet the biblical qualifications for a pastor, their doctrine is bad or whatever. I mentioned I grew up in a liberal church where the pastor didn't believe the Bible. That is not a church at all by biblical definition. So someone who's attending a group like that, they may call it a church, but that isn't a legitimate church. Is it conclusively then, can you draw the conclusion that that person's not really a genuine believer? No, I think there are a lot of people who are genuine believers but are confused and allow themselves for a time to, uh, you know, sit under teaching that's bad for them. So that's, I'd be hesitant to draw a hard and fast conclusion on that, but it definitely raises the right, uh, a legitimate question. And the thing to do if you have a friend or a relative who's in a church like that is give them better instruction. And how they respond to the truth is going to be actually a better, perhaps a better gauge of where they're at spiritually than the fact that they, they're in a bad situation right now. What do you mean the way you respond? So if you hear the truth and reject it, like, I, I don't want to hear that. I know that's biblical, but, you know, I like the lady that's pastoring us. Then that's someone who's rejecting the clear word of God in favor of a personal preference, and that's really the essence of unbelief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, how can you say that in 2019? You know, she's a woman can do anything a man can do. You know, you're just misogynistic. You're just trying to hold on to, to the last vestiges of power for old white men. You know, I mean, that's the way, that's the, way the world talks now. And if, and if that's the response, right, what did I say? That's the way the world talks. And if you're getting that response from somebody who is a professing believer, and so, you know, whatever 1 Timothy 2 or 1 Corinthians 14 says, whatever, you're not in step with sort of the accoutrements of critical race theory and identity politics and, and, and these sorts of things, that just doesn't sound uh, politically correct to me. It's not acceptable no matter what the Bible says. Oh, that, that interpretation of the Bible is, a, is the, a, an interpretation that was used for centuries to oppress people and keep them down, and you're just trying to continue that. I mean, that, that's a heart that has drunk at the well of, of worldliness rather than the fount of Scripture. And so if, if you get that kind of response, then you, know, you have a greater cause for concern. But the issue of losing rewards, I think, I think you know, Phil's right to say, you know, no, I don't think you can make a, a hard and fast distinction. I mean, the Roman Catholic Church is, 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 is an apostate church. It's, it's, it's antichrist. It's, it's uh, the temple of Baal, for crying out loud. And yet there are still people, individual people, who are so uh, poorly taught and who uh, read their, their Bible enough and, and hear enough of uh, the truth to perhaps be saved. And, and you, you hope that, that uh, the Holy Spirit, if they are saved, works in them eventually over time to lead them out of a place like that. But there are people even in the, in the worst, uh, you know, places of idolatry that individually, by God's grace, can hear enough of the gospel and, and by the, you know, the sovereign power of the Holy Spirit be regenerated unto, unto life. In terms of losing rewards, though, I think the answer to that question is necessarily yes. Why? Uh, because, you know, re- rewards in heaven, are, you know, is uh, per- perfectly directly proportional with uh, the, the progress one makes in sanctification. And 
the local church, the ministry of the local church is so unbelievably central and essential to the sanctification of, of the believer. If you're a believer who thinks, I don't really need the local church, or the local church really isn't making much of a, an impact on my sanctification, you've got serious problems, Pro, you know, maybe even worse problems than a woman pastor if, if you don't understand how vitally connected your sanctification is to life in community under qualified leadership. Because, you know, what does Hebrews say? Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You know, that sin will harden you, and you need one another to exhort one another to not be hardened that way. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need one another for sanctification. And more than one another, we need qualified leadership. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So obey these people because they're watching over you. First uh, Thessalonians 5 says, They have charge over you in the Lord, and so esteem them highly. So the idea is, Pastors are specifically appointed, and elders and, and other church leaders are specifically appointed by God in each individual congregation providentially for the specific needs of the people of Christ in that place. And so if you don't have qualified leadership filling that role, people you can obey and submit to knowing that they will give an account for you before Christ, right? If, if those agents of sanctification aren't what they ought to be in your life, then you're necessarily going to languish in sanctification because the church is a means. The preaching of the word, the, the fellowship of the saints, that's a means of your growth and holiness. And so if you don't have qualified leaders, you're going to necessarily lag by that much in your growth and holiness. And if you lag in your growth and holiness, you will indeed lose rewards. So you need to be in a place that's going to not just, not just a place that's got qualified leadership, but a place where your, your needs, spiritual needs, not your felt needs, but your spiritual needs are, are actually you know, being met and overseen by qualified men. Let, can I add a footnote to this? Because I deal with people on two sides of the, the question that underlies this. You know, I say don't, don't go to an apostate church because that's not a true church. And there are people, I think, who hear that and think, okay, if there are imperfections in that church, you better leave it. Right. As I dealt with a guy just this month, uh, his wife called, he's a listener to Grace to You, and said, my husband has stopped us from going to church because this church doesn't teach exactly like we believe. And so I didn't know what that meant, but I asked her for the name of the church. I looked it up. They had quite a few videos of sermons online. And it was a church where, it's true, they, there were certain things they taught. They were Arminian. They didn't believe in the sovereignty of God the same, in the same sense that we do. But in every sermon I watched, the pastor got up, opened the Bible, and taught from it. And my response was, I wouldn't leave that church over minor doctrinal differences. It's not an apostate church, even though I, I think they're in error on some of their doctrine. So how do you know if the error is sufficient to, you have to leave that church or not? It's not an easy judgment to make, but, but the worst thing you can do is begin to withdraw from the church completely just because you can't find a perfect church. There are no perfect churches. And if you're going to leave a church at the first 
sign of disagreement or something that's wrong or whatever. Rather than stay there, use your spiritual gift to try to bring that church to the point where it ought to be. To me, withdrawing from church altogether is actually a worse crime than if you were attending a church that, that had really bad teaching. And you hear a lot of that too, right? <clears throat> like, oh, there's just no good church within 100 miles of my house. And so therefore, I'm going to stay home and watch the Grace Church live stream. Look, we're glad to provide that live stream, especially for our members who are sick or who can't make it to church, you know, because maybe they're homebound or, or at least for a season they're homebound. You know, that's what that is there for. It's not there to be, you know, substitute church for, uh, you know, people who think that church is something that is merely watched on a screen. You know, church is not, I'll watch a sermon. Church is, I will participate in the body life of fellow Christians. I will get messy, roll around in the mud with the sheep because I'm a dumb sheep too and need to be a smarter sheep, right? I need to have my sins whittled away. I need to have my pride humbled. I need to, I need to be in the, you know, I mean, I've said this before from the pulpit, the reason why you're here is because you're sinners and you need sanctifying, right? That's why I come here. I don't come here because I like to just sit and listen to oratory. I come because my soul needs it. God commands me, but my soul needs it. I, I need you in my life to, to see me and say, hey, you're out of step, get back in, or to hear a sermon from Phil or John or from one of our Bible study shepherds that touches uh, on a nerve and, and, that, and that sanctifies me. You know, man, I, I have stories already from just the, some of the sermons that were preached and people coming to me and confessing sin and saying, I need to, I need to get right because sin is stupid, Numbers 25, and, and it is severe. Uh, and I need, I need to stop lying about it and, and, and come into the light. Like, you need that. That's church. Church isn't, I'll watch a live stream. So yeah, if you're, if you're inclined to hear that answer and say, well, because my church takes a different view on this particular passage or on this particular doctrinal issue, I'm just leaving and going to stay home and, and pipe church in in my pajamas. You know, that, that is revealing of a, of a, a spirit that's, that's wrong. You need to be able to flex. I, I think you ought not to go to apostate churches, no matter what, right? Don't, don't go to a church that has abandoned the gospel. But you know, for a church, yeah, that, that's wrong on certain soteriological issues, you know, that's, that's bad, but it, it's not, you know, it doesn't mean that their lampstand is removed. It doesn't mean that they're not a real church. And so you go and you fellowship with the people of God wherever you can find them uh, under the, the, um, the, you know, requirements of called godly men, uh, leadership, elders who, who oversee, who expose the word, who practice church discipline, who practice the ordinances. Very good. Thanks. Yeah, Brian? Yes. I was asked a question, I think it was maybe yesterday. It was along the same lines as what you're talking about as far as female teachers and stuff like that. And it was, but not preaching. It was more like what we have a lot of MABC students here who are women, and some of them are from foreign countries, and they're going back and to churches that have no training whatsoever. And they're going to be the only person in their church who knows really anything about biblical counseling. And so the question asked me, and I'd be curious to hear your response, was what, is, what am I allowed to do as a woman who now goes back and, you know, I want to maybe start some biblical counseling at the church or even talk to the pastor about this, but I don't want to be the, I don't want to teach, I don't want to, you know, violate that. Or, but, I, but I'm like the only one who has this, the knowledge set or something. So how would you... How would you respond to something like that? 
My first thought is obviously she needs to, you know, speak to the pastor and the elders and make sure that whatever it is that she does, you know, is under the direct their direction. Now that doesn't solve everything because sometimes there are weak pastors and elders who will allow women to violate uh, scripture's commands and people will say, well, it's fine for her to teach, uh, you know, in the, in the church, even, even though, because the, the men have said it's okay. So she's not usurping authority over a man, First Timothy 2.12, but she is teaching them. But both of those things are prohibited in that, in that passage. So, so that's a problem. So after though, but you don't want to just, you know, show up and not talk to them. You know, you go up, you, you talk to the leadership and you, you make sure that you're operating with, with submission. Certainly she can train other ladies to do biblical counseling and, and counsel other ladies. I mean, that's, that's, there's probably plenty of that uh, to go, you know, in terms of needs, you know, teach the, the women to, to love their husbands, love their children, care for their homes and, and, and become godly women. And in, in the cases of those whose husbands aren't uh, believers to win them with without a word, 1 Peter 3, by showing their respectful and chaste behavior. That, that, that right there is, you know, a five-year commitment, I think, at least, in terms of grabbing the, the, the available women in the church and, and discipling them. If I'm thinking about MABC, there's plenty of stuff that's, that's available online that she would have even experienced here at, at TMU, you know, at, in the MABC program, or at TMS, or at the Institute for Church Leadership, uh, which is a, a, a sort of a, a video c- curriculum that the seminary has put together. You can, you can search for that, Institute, Institute for Church Leadership at TMS. Videos of, of the same guys that taught her in the, in the lectures uh, at TMU that she could organize and have, you know, watch parties, you know, and, and get together, and, and let's, let's let, let me help you learn from the same folks that I've learned from, and I can be a proctor or, or a sort of a TA sort of a thing. Uh, those would be a couple of things that would go, you know, short of, let me take the pulpit on Sunday morning or the Sunday school lectern and, and begin instructing men, which scripture tells me I'm not to do. Is she single or married? Oh, that would be a question as That's well. That's an important question too. Because you have the example in Acts of uh, Priscilla and Aquila privately instructing Apollos and because he, he needed he needed better insight, and I'm I'm certain because she's mentioned that Priscilla did some of the instruction. It's private instruction there, and I think that's different from what Paul means when he says, I "Don't permit a woman to teach." He's not saying that women women should never tell their husbands anything they need to know that they don't. My wife has taught me a lot, and I'm grateful for that. But what's prohibited there is teaching in the gathered assembly. So I think a person in a situation like you described could do a lot privately, but I think it's, it's actually best if she's married and she and her husband do it together. And, and I think as a, related to that was, well, how does like, if it's, not, if it's outside the context of the church, like if you said like, oh, I just want to, you know, counsel, well, not counsel, um, I'm trying to think of how to word this. Because like she was saying, well, you know, how does, how, what is the difference between that and um, men attending like a, a female professor's class? And so the difference between education and the church environment, and I don't know if you could maybe split that here a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it is the assembly, right? It is the gathered assembly. The context of First Tim- the, the commands in First Timothy 2, all right, as, as, you know, this is how you conduct yourself in the household of God which is the pillar and support of the truth, 1 Timothy 3, that gives you sort of the purpose statement for the entire letter. And so, and even in 1 Corinthians 11 and 14, 1 Corinthians 14, you have that absolute prohibition. It's shameful for a woman to speak in church. And then you have the issues of 1 Corinthians 11 where 
you know, a woman is to pray or prophesy with her head covered. Well, wait a second. She's supposed to be absolutely, it's a shame for her to speak, so how is she praying and prophesying? Well, 1 Corinthians 11 doesn't speak about the gathered assembly until I think it's verse 17 or 18 in the, in the instructions of the, the head covering and praying and prophesying come in the previous verses. So in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen, but in giving this instruction, which has come about the head coverings and everything, I do not praise you because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For in, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. So in the first place, when you come together, Paul hasn't begun discussing the gathered assembly in 1 Corinthians 11 until uh, verse 18. And so you can have the kinds of, you know, again, Priscilla and Aquila taking Apollos aside and speaking privately. You know, education is not the matters of, you know, the church of God. Uh, if a woman is educated and, has, and is an expert in a field, you know, and, gets, and is, secular, is employed by a secular university and people attend, you know, that's that. But yeah, in the I church, think that's the right different. distinction to make, too. It's not, it's not primarily about who's educating whom. It's about who's in the position of leadership. And the church is designed to be led by men. And when churches, historically, you can see this across the entirety of church history, when, when women take over the leadership in the church, the church declines. It falls into apostasy and all sorts of problems. So this is about leadership. It's not about who has the knowledge and, and shares it. It's about leadership. And that's why this applies, the restriction on women teaching applies, first of all, to the gathered assembly. And then to the order, the, the structure of leadership in the church. As long as she's not, you know, taking a position of leadership, I think privately she can instruct people as much as she can. Yeah, and so, but like, can I do a biblical counseling seminar in my home? I, you know, I think that that's where you get gray areas. The gathered assembly, I don't think is limited to what we would think of as big church. I think it's, you know, inclusive of Sunday school. I think it's where, this, where the assembly comes to gather, right? And there's instruction there. So in terms of like that, I mean, we're not, we couldn't possibly, right, nail down every specific, but I think in general, obviously very clearly in, in church, in the, in, the, in the Sunday service sort of a thing. And I believe even in Sunday school and maybe even in home Bible studies, because these are, they are the gathering of the assembly of the church, even if not the whole church, right? These are, are uh, places restricted to men to illustrate the complementarity between men and women, that we are different, that we have different roles, that God means to illustrate what? The, the reality of Christ's relationship to his church, Ephesians 5, by seeing these roles as, you know, Christ the protector and the provider and the instructor and the, the church, you know, the, the, the eager servant uh, who respects her husband. Yeah, and I mean, maybe... Maybe it's too basic, but just pray too, right? Pray that God will bring along that yeah. male leadership. I hear it a lot, even where I had formerly worked with, you know, a lot of South American countries and things that say, well, there's just no men. Pray that God will bring even just that one man, or if it's a single gal, pray that God will bring along a husband that'll come along beside you and, and, and allow you to do this. Because I think not just women, men too, myself, my first thought is, I've got to just do it. You know, no yeah. one else is stepping up, so I've got to do it. Instead of just praying and being faithful. And then what an awesome, you know, example to others of that woman who is probably super qualified in a sense, you know what I mean? But yet, 
you know, I hear Mike say it all the time, you know, God's way is the best way, right? That we wait and be patient and pray and, and, and let God do that work instead of us having to jump in and think, well, I got to save this whole thing. Right. I mean, God's not bringing it along. Somebody's got to step up. So I guess it's me, you know, yeah. and uh, just even along that line, I've seen some neat examples where women have done that. And then the ministry has really flourished. So, uh, yeah, I mean, good. certainly you can't obey God by disobeying him. That's right. Right. I mean, that's just, it's, but you know, that's profound today because there's a lot of people, right? I mean, and and think about qualifications, right, for elders, one of them being male, being a man, right? If if you're not a man, you're not qualified to be an elder, but think about in the case, what would happen, oh, but no, there is no man, so I'm going to step up and I'm going to fill that role until there is somebody. Do that with one of the other qualifications, right? If there are no men in this particular church that are not addicted to wine, or there are no men who are respectable, hospitable, or there are no men who manage their household well and keep their children under control with all dignity. What do we do? We say, well, we'll let that person who, you know, biffs it on the qualification, doesn't meet the qualifications of an elder, we'll let that person occupy the office of an elder until we do get qualified elders? No, I mean, that's just not how it works. You need to, you need to submit to God's way of, uh, and, of doing things, of doing church, and, and 1 Timothy 3 is, and 2 and 3 are very clear. Yes. Uh, good morning, uh, Phil and Mike. I know Phil has taught a number of times on Isaiah 714, uh, Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. What about the two verses which follow, verses 15 and 16? I've, I've read a lot of different interpretations of those verses which say he will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good for before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken anybody got a MacArthur study bible (laughs) you probably have done more reading on that than I have yeah, Pastor John's commentary, or, or maybe it's the study Bible, says that uh, I believe starting in that both verses 15 and 16 are speaking of Isaiah's youngest son, who's mm-hmm. mentioned in the next chapter. Which is with and, a great name, right? Yeah. May her yeah. shall all I, I can't even pronounce it. But that's just one of uh, many interpretations. And the reason I, it's sort of difficult for me just exegetically, it's kind of hard for me to see that, you know, following as it does from verse 14. Sure, yeah. Yeah, it, it is a problem passage, uh, and different commentators deal with it different way, different ways. I remember studying this and reading John Gill, and he, he takes verse 14 and 15 as a reference to Christ, and verse 16, then he suddenly switches and says, uh, this has to be understood as a reference to Isaiah's child, Shear Jashub. So I'd have to reread it to refresh my mind on how he makes that flip-flop. Well, but I think if you let Scripture interpret Scripture, you have to see a reference to Christ in Isaiah 7.14. And in, in my mind, then, that has to govern how you do exegesis of the rest of the passage. I've only dealt with that verse in Christmas messages, so I've never actually done a full exposition of Isaiah, and, and so I'm not really prepared to do it right now. But uh, you're right, it's a difficult passage, and um, uh, it, it's interesting to see how different commentators deal with it. 
I think the wrong thing to do is conclude, as I know some have, that this is not a reference to Christ at all, that somehow the New Testament infused that meaning back into the Old Testament text. I think that destroys the whole the significance of, of Messianic prophecy. And I think one thing that you do see in, in, in several prophetic passages is that hard pivot from near fulfillment to far fulfillment. You know, one of the passages I think of is Isaiah 61, which, which Jesus quotes of himself in Luke 4, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance to our God. Now that last phrase is, is part of verse 2 in Isaiah 61. But Jesus stops short in the middle of the sentence of his quotation because there's going to be this mystery age in between the first and second comings of Messiah, which Isaiah, you know, as a prophet, didn't see, you know, the, the, uh, the reality that Messiah would come across two comings. It's often, they often talk about the prophetic telescoping that you can see a mountain, you know, like you know, there's a mountain way in the distance and then there's a mountain in front of that mountain. And to one observing from over here, it looks like the same mountain. But if you were to get up above, bo- you know, above both mountains, you'd see they'd, they'd come, they'd be, you know, as, dis- as far away as they actually are. You know, here, Jesus comes and he is, he has been anointed by the Spirit. And he has, is bringing good news to the afflicted. And he is binding up the brokenhearted. And he is proclaiming freedom to prisoners of sin. And he is proclaiming the favorable year of the Lord. But because the favorable year of the Lord was always connected with the, the, venge, the vengeance of the day of the Lord judgments, right? And then because that was not to come at Christ's first coming, but only at his second coming, Jesus stops in the middle of the verse and says that today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And, you know, really, really rigorous exegetes would want to come back and say, but Jesus, are you exegeting that Isaiah 61 properly? Because you're not, you're not finishing verse two. You've got to get it. And that's where we have this idea of near and far fulfillment. Another thing, another example of that, maybe even more clear, is in Second Samuel 7 in the, in the promise of the Davidic covenant, which we all know to be uh, uh, you know, having a reference to Christ as the greater son of David who will build a house for uh, God's people and will, uh, will reign over them forever. So the promise is, I will also appoint a place for my people Israel will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. Even from the day that I command judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Yahweh also declares to you that Yahweh will make a house for you when your days are complete and you lie with your fathers. I will raise up your seed, your descendant after you, who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be a father to him and he will be a son to me. Now, up until there, that sounds exactly like the Lord Jesus Christ and the New Testament takes these passages and applies them to Christ. But the next sentence, and I will establish his throne forever, I will be a father, he'll be a son to me. That's the middle of verse 14. It says, then when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the loving and the strokes of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed the kingdom before you. So here's this promise of, I'm going to give the seed of David, the son of David, the kingdom of Israel, and he's going to reign forever. Who's that? That's Christ. And when he commits iniquity, wait a second now, that's not Christ. So that's the same sentence. So in, in multiple passages, you have uh, these prophetic passages, especially these messianic prophecies, you have the, the near fulfillment, which would have been 
in this, in 2 Samuel 7, to Solomon, right? And, and then the far fulfillment, the one who is the, the, the ultimate son of David in, in, the, in the most ultimate sense. I think you have, probably have something similar in Isaiah 7, 14 and f- through 16, where you have a near fulfillment in Meher Shaul Hashbaz, whose name I will say as many times as I have the opportunity <laughs> to say it, and Christ, Show the, off. Ultimate, the ultimate. Uh, that's just the cool, this is the greatest name. Right. So a, a great question, by the way, and it, it's a difficult issue that different people, even within our context here at the seminary and the church, have taken different approaches to answering that question. The thing we all affirm is that the meaning of Scripture is one. There aren't multiple meanings to any text. Uh, but So when he talks about near fulfillment, far fulfillment, uh, what Mike is not saying is that there are, there are conflicting meanings to this text. It's more like double entendre, that there's a meaning in this text that, that it is the, the single truth, but it has reference in, in the case he just quoted, for example, from 1 Samuel, to both Christ and Solomon. And I think you have a similar situation in Isaiah 7. Uh, I mentioned that John Gill took those verses that way. Also, as I recall, and you might want to read Gill's commentary on that, he actually quotes some ancient Uh, rabbinical sources, Jewish interpreters before the time of Christ who looked at Isaiah 7, 14 and said, this is a messianic prophecy. So even from the context of that scripture itself, it was clear to Old Testament interpreters that this had a special reference to the coming Messiah, I I think because of the name Emmanuel. But I'd have to reread Gil to refresh my memory on that. But that's a a really good and difficult question. And, And of course, ultimately, right? You know, unless we want to deny the inspiration of the New Testament, I mean, Ma- Matthew, you know, takes this verse and says, this is what this was about, right? Uh, she will bear a son, you should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So however we explain the relationship of verses 15 and 16 to verse 14, we can't say that verse 14 isn't about Christ. Good. Thanks, though. Good question. This will probably be our, our last question. So, yes, in the back. Hello. My name is Elmore. Elmore, good and to meet you. Nice to meet you. I've been listening to John about 25 years, but I've only been visiting here about six months. So. Welcome. Yeah, Finally welcome. made it. In Genesis, it says where God told Adam and Eve the day that you eat from the tree and I tell you not to eat of it, you will surely die. I, I hear people everywhere, this church, all churches, saying that, well, you know, they died spiritually. And um, I'm a little troubled by that because I feel it's like a pat answer to the question of why they didn't just drop dead there on the spot. I mean, God did say they would surely die. Um, why do we say that? Yeah, another good and, question, by the way. And my, there's a second part to that question. Okay. Um, sorry. Why do we say that? And can you show how man has died spiritually if that's the case? And did someone or something actually did die that day or around that time? 
Yeah, that is a great question. In fact, every question today has been really good. I commend all of you on the fact that it's not just the old hackneyed questions that we get all the time. I love that about Grace Life. You mm. guys are thinkers. Yeah, amen. Uh, but the answer is, if you said it seems like a pat answer, it is the correct answer. And the, and the biblical text I would go to, to to make the point is Ephesians chapter 2, which says, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's exactly the imagery Scripture uses about the state of fallen humanity. In Adam, all die. And that doesn't mean ultimately in the final sense only. I mean, we all do die ultimately in the final sense, but in Adam, all died, meaning we all fell into sin, a sinful state of spiritual death. Hmm. That's described in detail in Ephesians chapter 2, dead in our trespasses and sins. And if God doesn't awaken us from that by His grace, then there's no hope for us. Yeah. Um, So, this is, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I don't know how else to answer that other than to say, Scripture clearly says and repeatedly says that we are, we are all spiritually dead, and it's because of what Adam did, Romans 5. How does, how does God taking skins from an animal, which obviously had to lose their life, how does God take, take… Yeah, he killed them. He killed them. Okay. Uh, I see what and you're getting that, at. How yeah. is it related I see what you're getting at, yeah. So there's a substitute physical death that provided a covering for Adam and Eve. And yeah, I think most interpreters would say that's at least a picture of how salvation works, that you have the physical death of a substitute. Some blood has to be shed, an innocent victim. In this case, it was two innocent animals that provides a covering for sin. But as you know from Scripture, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. So that's only a picture of how atonement ultimately deals with our sin through the blood of Christ, that He died in our place and in our stead. Yeah, but, but it is all, the only way it's true that Adam died in the day that he ate of that tree was he died spiritually. So I, I think that is the correct answer. Yeah. Uh, it also put him on a track towards physical death. But in the very day he committed that act of disobedience, he died spiritually. Yeah. And R- Romans 5.12 says that. I mean, as, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death entered through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. There, there's, a, there's a huge amount of theology in that first half of a sentence. I did a message back, I don't know how long ago it was, maybe before the end of the summer or before the, before the beginning of the summer, called The Doctrine of Sin, in which I, I think I dug into that a little, you know, quite a bit. But the reality is there, if death spread to all men because all sinned, past tense, when did all sin past tense? When did the, the, the babies born tomorrow sin past tense? They only sinned in their union with Adam as their representative head. And when they sinned in Adam, he, you know, they being in him in some mystical way, they died because death spread past tense to all men because all sinned past tense. So the death that he mentioned, 1 Corinthians 15, in Adam all die. The, the death that we die in Adam is the death of his spiritual death when he commits that sin. Now, uh, from, from Genesis 3, you, I mean, you're totally right to see that the animal has to die for sure. But Adam and Eve also died, right? Adam and Eve also died physically 
eventually. And so that, that substitutionary sacrifice that was there for them on that day wasn't something that says, okay, something's got to die. He died, so now you're free. They still were subject to the, the, the effects of their spiritual death. But you, you can't take 2.17 seriously. Like you can't give it its, its force if you say, you know, and God said, in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. If they don't surely die in the day that they eat from it, in some sense, then I don't know how, how God's not a liar at that point. No, and in fact, that was, the, that was the very accusation that Satan tempted Eve with. He says, I think it's Genesis 3, 4. Yeah. You shall not surely die, the devil said. So he questions that threat. And if you look at it like, well, that could only mean physical death, and therefore it didn't happen, therefore God did threaten them with something he didn't do, then you've got a real problem on your hands uh, with the faithfulness and credibility of God. Uh, the only thing it can possibly mean is that they died in that very day, they died spiritually. And all of Scripture is the story of how that did happen, and here are the consequences of it. And I want to say one more thing about that. Death in Scripture is never the cessation of existence, right? When Scripture uses the term die, it never means you stopped existing or you just became extinct or you, you know, were disintegrated or something. Death always means separation. For us in, in this, you know, era of history, you know, death means the separation of the soul from the body, uh, when, 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 eternal death for people who are finally, you know, dying in their sins means eternal separation from God's presence to bless and his favor. In, in what, what happened in the garden, the, the death that took place in the garden was not a, a cessation of existence. It was a separation. So they, then the eyes, so they, they ate, you know, she ate, he gave, she gave to her husband, he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open. They knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. That's the beginning of all false religion, of all man-made self-atonement. Ah, I've, I've messed up. I've got to cover my own sin. And then what happens later? God makes coverings. He kills the animal that has to die. He says, I'll cover your sin because you cannot do it yourself. What's the next verse? They heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the face of God among the trees of the garden. Immediately is that separation because there's been a spiritual death, and now there's an actual separation in the relationship between God and man. And then you come to the end of the, of the chapter, and then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and so on. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So there was a separation of man from God in, you know, in that moment where they hide from him, eventually at the end of that whole scene where they're driven from his presence in the garden, and then typified in the tabernacle where there's the, the, the outer court, there's the, the holy place, and then there's the holy of holies. God's presence can only be mediated through a priest, through a mediator, because you can't, man can't come into the presence of God. Sin has immediately separates man from God. And, that, and that's true on even a relational level, the moment that sin takes place. Very good. All right. Great well, questions. Thanks, you guys. Yeah, great questions. Next week, we'll do this again. So if you want, uh, you can write down something and give it to me today when we come back next week. If you want to email me something, packerman at gty.org. Grace to you. Or Packerman, if you can't Or Packerman, if you can't. Yeah. Um, so, or 
text me. I, I think some people have already been texting me while I'm up here, so that's fine too. So if you want to get those to me before next week, that would be great, or hand them to me next uh, Sunday, and then we'll do the same thing. We'll have the open mics in the back again. So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll go. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, again for today. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Lord, that is our desire. And uh, Lord, thank you for giving us your perfect word. Thank you for Mike and Phil. Thank you for their diligence and study. Thank you for the wisdom that you've given them. And Lord, thank you so much for this day that we are able to come and, and to bring you worship. Lord, we just thank you for all this in your name. Amen. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson, all rights reserved.